opportunities to share different Torah. And uh, recently I've been coming to the Kodal once a week. A moment ago it was less than that, but uh, the Rosh is really on top of me. And uh, it's one of the highlights of my week, I must say, and I have great honor to come to the Kodal to share different Torah. So today we will not be giving another Shia, but rather some Divrei Chizuk and some Divrei Zekorin. Uh, tomorrow is Tes Tammuz. Tes Tammuz is the yard site of Moedi Berabi of the Kloizen Bagarevi. And I'm sure that throughout uh, the years we mentioned and I shared some things that I learned from this uh, giant of our time. Uh, the Kloizen Bagarevi was definitely one of the most outstanding monumental figures in the Torah world, in the Hasidish world, last Holocaust. And uh, it was Tovshin Nun Dalit, 28 years ago, the Leil Shabbos Kodesh, Sha'olo Besara HaShomayimo. And Chazal say, Gzeir HaMeshi Yishtakech Menalev. And Yud Beis Kodesh is this man of Avelis. But that is a day I will remember forever and I could never forget. So many things that I shared and experienced and I learned from my great Rebbe that I'll never forget, but that Leil Shabbos Kodesh was so, was so traumatic that it'll always be with me after Sudi Shabbos and it was a quiet uh, Leil Shabbos Kodesh like any other. And uh, I think it was about 11 or 12 o'clock by night and, you know, there was people running around in the streets and knocking on doors. Everybody should come to the Beis Medish because there's a sudden decline that ever wasn't well for years before we passed away and we all rushed to the Beis Medish and hundreds upon hundreds of people were saying, tell them for an hour or so and then an anakal of the Rebbe stormed into the Vismedish and just banged on the bima, didn't say a word, couldn't say a word, and everybody knew what that means. And uh, and uh, the Telem, in one instant, stopped and, you know, was quiet. And instead of saying Telem, I think the hundreds of people standing there all started to cry and 28 years have passed, and uh, you probably see that I'm just remembering that little Shabbos Kodesh, and, and I am becoming emotional after 28 years. So I want to just tell you about the Kloizen Bagarabi because you're all young Avrechim, and none of you could have the opportunity to see this great Tzadik and this great Godel. Uh, so, uh, I, I think the story of the Kloizen Magarevi cannot be told without starting uh, with the Shaya, with the period of the Holocaust and right after the Holocaust. But to me, the story of the Kloizen Magarevi starts many years before that, because my late Shaver, my father-in-law, whose your site was just a week ago, last week, and he was one of the only Talmidim that survived the Holocaust, Talmidim from Kloisenburg. So today, in the entire Jewish world, when you say Kloisenburg, what comes to mind is the Divriyatsa, the Kloisenburg Rebbe. Historically, the Kloisenburg Rebbe was the Rav 
of a tiny little Sephardic breakaway Kehillah in Kloisenburg. Kloisenburg was a big, big Jewish center. It was a modern Jewish center. And the Kloisenburger Rav, who was the real Kloisenburger Rav, was Alav Glasner, who was probably the only real Hasidic from a Zionistic Rav in the entirety of Hungary. He was a real Zionist, which was very, very, he was unique. So Kloisenburg had two unique opponents. Each of them was special in his own way. One was the only Zionistic from Rav in Hungary, and the other was the only one that in the Jewish world today is known as the Kloisenburger Rav. It was a small Sparli Hasidish community, and he had a small yeshiva, and only a few Tamidim survived, and one of them was Maishver. Maishver actually, a few years, was the Rav in Kiryat Sons, when the Rebbe established Kiryat Sons, and he was going back and forth from America to Natanya and back to America. He asked Maishwet to be the Rav of the community, which he was. And then when the Rebbe finally settled down in Kiryat Sons, then Maishwet became a Rav in Akko. And he was known in the Jewish and the film world as the Akko Rav. So Maishwet many times told me how it was to be a Talmud of the Kloisenburg Rebbe in Kloisenburg. So it was a very small issue, and it was very Hamish. And the Kloisimogoro was like a father, and uh, and he told me he used to they used to sleep in the base medish. And so my Shver had a proper bed, and his Rebbe, the Kloisimogoro, used to sleep on a bench, and the bench was next to the wall. And after a very few short hours of sleep, he used to either with his hand or his foot push against the wall and the bench toppled over. And that is how we got up every day in the morning with a big uh, scream. And that is how he used to get up in the morning, just pushing against the wall and falling off that bench. And my shver used, used to share with me experiences, how the shear was so... To me, the story of my Rebbe starts years before the Shoya, years before the Holocaust, hearing stories that I heard from my Shver, who was what, one of the only surviving Talmudim from that Kufa. My father, as I told you many times, met the Kloisenberger Rebbe second day Shuas in Birkenau, in Auschwitz-Birkenau. My father and his family arrived the first day Shuas, 1944 that I'd be arrived the day later. The day my father arrived, his grandparents, father, mother, five out of eight siblings went straight to the gas chambers and to the crematoria, and they went up and smoked. The day that Kloisenberg-Rebbe arrived, the day later, his wife and 10 children went straight to the gas chambers and to the crematoria, and he was left with his oldest son, his oldest son perished and died a few days after the liberation from illness, from typhus, and he was left all alone. And in the period of the Shaya, his Tzitkus and his Kedusha became so, so obvious. So to the Nazis, 
being a very important leader or a Rav gave you no special attention. It just made matters worse. They tortured the Rabbonim. They killed the leaders. And the Kleisen Bagarevi, in those terrible days, in those terrible circumstances, had no protection. Some of the young Jewish boys tried to help him, to make it easier for him. But to the Nazis, they were all the same. And the Kleisen Bagarevi worked Avoides Perach together with all the others, same. And when he used to work like an Evid Kanani, carrying heavy rocks and boards, and his lips were moving all the time, and he, as if, was reciting some posik or speaking to himself. And one of the Jews came close to him and just listened to what he's saying, and he quoted the posik again and again and again. Tachas and that possible was Shogar al And he just went over that posik again and again. Sidukadim, The Rambam, as we know, quotes that posik at the end of Al-Khaslura when the Rambam speaks about Simchas Amitzvah. And that was Shogar al Sidukadim, and say, well, we deserve this because we didn't serve a Kodesh Baruch Hu Mitzvah. So this entire period, 14 months that Hungarian Jews were in the Holocaust, he, he didn't eat cooked food and he used to swap, you know, the soup, the awful soup that they got for another piece of bread or another uh, raw potato because he didn't want to eat, you know, as much as one can, stay away from Bosra and Nevela. And he passed into everyone, you need to eat whatever you have because it's Bikuach Nefesh, and clearly was Bikuach Nefesh. So the heter to eat, those Macholas Asuras were twofold or threefold. First of all, it was a clear Bikuach Nefesh. People died from starvation if they did eat, and if you would not eat, definitely would be a direct Bikuach Nefesh. And I think that food was Nifsal probably Nifsal Me'achilas Kelev, and not only So there was so much room for Kula, but, you know, as a great Tzaddik, if Rabbi Kiva was Moise Nafsha, a native in Chofalaf, and he didn't want to drink the water, and he took it for the Tilus So the Kloisim Magarevi, and my father was together with him, that entire period. They were short while in Auschwitz. They were sent to Warsaw to part of a team to clear away the rubble after the uprising and after the Warsaw get was destroyed. From there they went to Dachau and to Tutzing. And uh, and that entire period that Evasitius was unbelievable and he tried to not to eat Machalasasuris at all. And after the war was over, and he lost his entire family. And the tragedy of losing his oldest son, his oldest son was a big Ili, and he died after the liberation. And as the saying goes, 
the straw that broke the camel's back. That would be so devastating to see your oldest son surviving the war, surviving all those horrors and torture, and passing away after it was all over from illness. And once in a very private conversation that I had with, uh, with my great Rebbe, he said, not for one moment was I Mahara Achlemi Daisav Shalakadish And I remember a shudder went through my body when just to hear those words. Losing his wife and all eleven of his children and being left all alone. And he said, I never questioned the Kodish Bokhu's ways, even for one. So in Perikei of Mesechet Dabais, the Mishnah says, "Asorin esyonis niswa kodesh bochu niswa v'om adinu asa kodesh bochu." Asorin esyonis niswa kodesh bochu esa v'om adinu v'om ad bekulam. Rashi writes, "V'loyhiler achrei midoisav shalat kodesh bochu." And probably what Rashi means to say is, there were many, many throughout the ages that were oimed benesyonis. Each and every one of us sometimes has this yearness in life, some more, some less. But maybe there were other Jews throughout the ages that were oimed in a certain What was unique and special about Avraham Avinu was, and that is exactly what, uh, what I heard from my Rebbe. So going through all those horrors. And so many people were totally broken and they left Yiddishkeit and, and we have no right to judge them after what they've been through. So very recently, a month ago, I spent uh, a few days in Munich at a conference of European rabbis and I wasn't even aware that Ferenwald was right next to Munich. And Federpald was a DP camp after the war. A DP camp is a displaced persons camp. It was a German workers camp and the Americans kicked out all the Germans and they gave the camp over to Jewish survivors. And Federwald was where the Kloisenbergerevi started rebuilding Yiddishkeit when the Holocaust was over. And I was in Munich, so I went to visit Fairwell. I just wanted to see the place where my parents met, my parents married, my older brother, whom I hope to see later tonight or tomorrow, the chief rabbi in Montreal, he was born there in Fairwell. And they have a little museum there, and to me it was very moving just to see the place. So the Americans gave American names to the streets in Fedenwald instead of the German names. So two little streets, New York Street and New Jersey Street, were where the Kloisenberg was active. And most of the camp was totally secular. Most of the camp was totally non-from. And we must try to understand 
there was a total breakdown of authority. Thousands upon thousands of young boys. No fathers, no mothers, no grandfathers. Everybody could do what he wanted. Just try to imagine. It was after four or five years. No davening, no filling, no nothing, no cashless. And then for Hungarian Jews, a year and a half with no sitter, no chumish, no gemorah, no kosher food, no tzitzis, no filling, nothing. And suddenly you're free. No authority, no rabbonim, no parents, no zaydis, nothing. And after seeing so much nisyanis, each, each and every one of those boys, mea nisyanis, nisua kodesh bochu, they went through seeing their fathers and mothers going up in ashes in the smoke and, and entire families they had so many in the CIMS. and there were very few like the Klesimogaremi and like my parents who stuck the Yiddish guy and the Klesimogaremi was almost a yochid and I say this with all authority almost a yochid that didn't waver for one second one moment. He had no svekas. The moment it was over, he dedicated all his might and all his energy to rebuild the Yiddishkeit. He was a very dominant personality, and he convinced the American authorities to give him a section of that camp, and that section was Kodesh Vitor. Nothing came in there. Stuck to the Kreuzenbogelevi. And those individuals became dozens and they become hundreds. And that was probably the most significant rebuilding of Yiddishkeit in the direct aftermath of the Shoya. And in Fairwell, he built a school, and my mother was a student in that school and then a teacher in that school and yeshivas and my father from the very first day as I mentioned before the second day of Shuas when he approached and after the liberation because under the Nazis there was nothing you could do besides just cling to HaKadosh Baruch and to Yerushkeit and your own there was nothing you could do for others. But the moment it was over, the Klesimogarebe told my father, now is the time to rebuild. And my father objected. He said, you know, he was 17 years old, 17 and a half years old when, when he arrived in Auschwitz, and he was a big Ilya, and he said, I want to learn. And the Rebbe said, now is not time for learning. Now is the time for building. And the Rebbe told him, believe me, I want to learn. You think you're a London, I'm as much London as you are. And I would also like to learn. But that is not, now is not the time for learning. Now is the time for caring and for rebuilding and bringing Yiddish again back. So my father volunteered for a few months. And there's a famous story in the Jewish world about my father and the Rebbe rowing the area in an American army jeep and burying the dead because Jewish were dead were everywhere. And uh, 
Dachau is not far from from Fernbaum. And Dachau was a cat. But it wasn't just caring for the dead, it was far more caring for the living. Cheder, Yeshiva, and Mikveh. So actually the little museum in Fernbaum is in the house that the mikveh was there. That was where they built the first mikveh in those camps. So after a few months, my father told the Rebbe that he decided to go back to yeshiva because the Rebbe opened the yeshiva. And the Rebbe told my father, Moshe, you know nothing about Mesiris Nefesh. Mesiris Nefesh is not depriving your body from food and drinks. That's Mesiris Guf. Said, Messiris Nefesh is slamming your Gemara closed. That's Messiris Nefesh. Closing your Gemara to care and to try to bring Kaddish Kokos Kedalach back to Yiddishkoch. So after that, Musash was my father dedicated years and he left Ferapal relatively late four years after the liberation when most most of the people were already taken care of and married, some had children, and most of them went off either to Etzisola or to America. That is when my parents packed up and left Germany. My oldest brother was born in Fernwald and number two, my mother was uh, nine months pregnant, but she needed to lie because they wouldn't let her up on the plane they would know how pregnant she is. And when I speak about my late mother, I think it was the only lie she ever said in her life. I don't think she ever lied again. She lied to the American authorities, and my second oldest brother was born a week after they came to America. So in the aftermath of the Holocaust, the Rebbe, didn't dwell on his own loss, but dedicated Gomorrah's Koyach to rebuild Yiddishkeit. I think a year, the first year site or so, after the Rebbe passed away, I was invited to a big event of Agudasisur in America. They asked me to speak about the Rebbe. And I told the story about Erev Yom Kippur Tavshinov it was a year after the liberation and the close of Agalebi, as one could expect, Erev Yom Kippur was a very special day. Preparing for Yom HaKodesh and suddenly there's a knock at the door. The Rebbe approaches, he opens the door, and a little girl is standing there. And the girl says, I remember every year my father used to bench me Erev Yom Kippur. I no longer had a father. So she asked the Rebbe to bench her. He took a handkerchief, which is something that we, that is no longer available, but it was since a few years ago. Let's say he took a napkin or a tissue, spread it over her head, because the tzaddik wouldn't touch a girl's head, and he put his hands on her head and he benched her. As we could expect, a few minutes later, there was another knock on the door, and another bunch of girls. 
So he spent half a day at Yom Kippur benching about 80 girls who were standing in line. Each of them lost a father. And this story is so symbolic because he was like a father to their core. So those remnants at Somersievacious, he gave them new life and new spirit and new hope and a new Nishama. And there are probably hundreds of thousands of Eden today over their Yiddish guy for that period. And that everyone was in charge of a few DP camps, Fedenwald and Feldefin, or two camps, two different sides of a river near Munich. And the Rebbe dedicated years just rebuilding Yiddishkeit. And just as an insight to his greatness, he was an enigma of the Divachaim. And in many shiurim we shared throughout the years, I told you that the question of the Rebbe the Divachaim was the Rashba, or the Rambam. He learned the Rechaim like I learned Rambam. And to him, every letter and every word in the Divachaim was Kodesh Kodesh. And the Divachaim was very much against Shekel, as you probably know. And the Kodesh Kodesh Rebbe's family, a Shekel was like Chometz and Pesach. A Shekel by the Kodesh Kodesh was almost like a machine Matzah and Pesach. You must understand. But I'm fed about after the war, every girl that was willing to wear a shekel, he gave the shekel as a gift. That's just a bit of an insight into a real cuddle. Stands different times. So there were very few girls that even considered wearing a shekel. So that was his personal gift. And a shekel cost a lot of money then. And nobody had any, nobody had money. So that was quite a, a, a challenge. So his personal gift to every chazan was, at the Kalas Willington wear a shekel, that is his gift. I'm sure that he contemplated the Lundis and the Sveikis and and it was because if he wouldn't give the shekel, there would be no shekel. So he was like a father to all those Nebuchadnezzar and Sebrocha and Shomis that no longer had fathers and mothers. So these are stories I just heard. I wasn't around. So now I want to share with you what, what I personally experienced. And that was a different period in his life. Uh, I was born in America. And uh, about five years after my parents came to America, the fourth out of seven children. So the Kloysen Megarebi was a leader of a Hasidic dynasty. Kloysen Megarebi Hasidic. Actually, it sounds. He saw himself as a mancher of the Divachaim. He was the fourth generation. The Divachaim son was the Gorlitzerov, his son was the Rudinkerov, and his son was the Kloysenberg. So the Kloysenberg was the great grandson of the Dibrechaim. 
And in so many ways, he was like the Divrei Chaim. The Divrei Chaim was a Hasidic Sherevi. But in the history of Hasidus, no other Hasidic Sherevi achieved the status of the Divrei Chaim as a Poisek Adol. Many other Hasidic Sherevim were known to be tremendous Gedolim. Just to mention the Hidush the Avnei Yezah, many others. But none of them really achieved the status as a Choisek Ador, like the Divachayim. The Divachayim was comparable in his generation to Rav Shloyme Kruger, to Rav Yosef Shonatanzan, and most of the very serious questions, Shailas Alokhanamaisa came to the Divachayim. The Avnei was known as a trailblazer. The was known to be one of the greatest Khalifim in his generation. But the Divar Chaim was considered one of the greatest Gedolim of his time. And none of the Divar Chaim's children or grandchildren achieved that status till the close of Magadari, who was also known as one of the greatest Gedolim of his time. And there are seven volumes, Shalash Yashudas Divariyatsa, which deal with, with the total spectrum of halachic discussion. But I think he was the only Rebbe in the history of Hasidus in 300 years, to the best of my knowledge, that by his tish Friday night said a pimple. The Divar Chaim didn't have that minig. That was the place of the Rebbe's minig. And I think it's the only Hasidic Rebbe in 300 years since the Bolshevtov that set up shetel in the tish Friday night. And going back so many years, more than 50 years, you must understand in those days there weren't 5,000 Hasidim at the Tish. There were 25 Hasidim at the Tish. 30. It was a Shabbos Mavorchen. 50. And when he said the Pshetl 45 were fast asleep, <laughs> it didn't matter to him. My late father never was asleep. He was one of the only ones that followed the shuttle, the pilpum. But the Kloisen Magarebi's personality, I don't care if everybody sleeps. You've got to do what you have to do. This is my minute, and this is what I'm going to do. He was treated for a heart illness in Mayo Clinic. His life was in jeopardy. On Friday night, he was in his room in Mayo Clinic with an old Gabbard that I knew very well. I'm not going to mention his name because never in his life would he understand the shuttle. So there were two people sitting next to his bed. And he made a tish and he said, Abshetl, whom are you talking to? There's one Gabbard that's fast asleep and the other one that left the room when he started saying the Probably the Malachim were there. You know, Malachim came down in to hear this Salik, what he has to say, his shuttle. I don't think they intervened. They probably didn't interject, but that was the cause of Magadari. Every day was Mesidus Nefesh. You have to do what you have to do. When other people come along, sometimes yes, sometimes no. And he was the Yid of Mesidus Nefesh. Friday night, but this you say, and I don't care whether anybody is listening or not. 
this is what I do. So, and that was so symbolic of his combination of Kedusha and Chesidus and Torah. So that was unique. Shetel Belel Shabbos Kodesh. He was a Bani And maybe some of his Yisurim were associated with the Holocaust. But he was a Bani He was very weak. And he suffered from migraines all his life. And sometimes his headaches were just unbearable. For years he had a special uh, rubber, thick rubber band that he put over his forehead and somewhat eased his pain. But he suffered from migraines, from headaches. And this is a story I told many, many times because I remember the impression it made on me. So once a week he gave a sheep probably to the entire yeshiva. But every day there was a private shear in his room, in his private room, for a small group of Talmudim. And for years I had this was to be part of that small group. And he used to give a shear. And the shear used to be anywhere between 50 minutes and an hour, which is relatively short. And we learned Yeradeya, we learned Choshen Mishpat, we learned Gemara. And usually he didn't really prepare that shear. It was more spontaneous, more of the nature of a discussion, talking and learning. And I remember once the shear was unusually short. It was about 40 minutes, and we didn't understand why. But after a few moments, minutes, this, the, the mystery became clear. So a person whom I personally know, who was very close to the Klesimagera, and he was a big uh, nogi, lived in London. And as the Rebbe finished the shi, he walked into the room, and the Rebbe apologized, so we understood what happened. The Rebbe invited this person to come to see him Monday night, 8 o'clock, or whatever it was. And he apologized that he can't because he needs to catch a 12 o'clock flight. And but Gozumbagarev, you never knew what time it is. You know, he could plan something for 8 and it'll be 10. What could he do? Sometimes there was traffic in the middle of the Shemaynesa. It took an hour to finish the Shemaynesa. You know, you, can, you can't plan anything in advance. So this person apologized, he needs to catch a flight, and so can be at a clock. And the said, I promise, I know you need to catch a flight, come at 8 and I'll be available. So the person comes at 8. And he, so the guy tells him, okay, you'll need to wait. Say, well, I have an appointment at 8 o'clock. So the guy was surprised and he said, but 10 to 8, that I've started this year. What do you mean, 10 to 8, he started the Shia? How long would the Shia take? He says, an hour. So he says, but he, he knows I need to catch a flight. And, and the Shia was very short. It took about till 8.30. And this person walks in and the Rebbe apologizes. And he says, I did not forget my commitment. And I planned to see you at 8. But I had such a terrible headache. And I took medicine, nothing helped. He said. He spoke, he expressed himself in a somewhat exaggerated way. That was his, his style. You know, Chazal we also find gizmo. So he said, I thought I'm going to die. He said, I had no other choice. I had no other option just to call it the Bukhar Mambaran. And 
this is something we actually saw and experienced. You know, it's it's usually a nice story, but there was something that we actually saw. When he learned, he was like transferred into a different realm, and he became young, and he became vital, and he became vibrant. And when he walked into the room to say the Shia, he was an old, old, weak man. Saying the Shia, he seemed to be 30 years younger and vibrant. And, and the moment he finished the Shia, he like imploded. So we apologized to this person and he said, I, I apologize, I did not forget what I promised and I, and the Shia, I, I made the shorter Shia, but I had no choice. I had no choice. I had such a terrible headache that the only thing. So maybe some of you saw pictures of the Kloisimagadevi. In most of the pictures, he is very serious. And his, his image is one of Kloisimagadevi. There are very few pictures in which he has an unbelievable, radiant smile. And one of the most beautiful pictures of the Kloisimagadevi is an amazing, radiant, the smile of an angel. And his hand is like this, with a finger. And it's obvious that picture was made in the middle of a shear. I don't know why we do this less today. And in Amorak Tzaytan, Ashishivas and Megidah Shear use their fingers a lot. There's a beautiful picture of the Klaisu Megidah and radiant smile, and his hand is like this. When he learned Torah, was it was like a totally different different experience. So there's a medrash in Parshas Yisrael, an amazing medrash. The medrash asks, In the 40 days, Moshe was in the heavens, what did he eat? Which is a strange question. What could he eat? But the medrash asks, what did he eat? Well, the Pesach says, Lechem Lechem lo yochol, ma'im lo yishoso. So, menestam, chazara medayik, lechem lo yochol. What, yes. And the Medrash says, melachma shel Torah ochal, umezir hashchino. Melachma shel Torah, umezir hashchino. And I think Chazal don't say anything unless we have what to learn. And what we need to learn from this Medrash is that a person could eat and the Vekas and Torah could give you a livelihood, not only but that gave him chiyus, that gave him strength. So in Shira Shira Perekhas, the Pesach says, And Yitim Ish Korhoim Beisoy, Boiz Yeboizudo. And in Shira Shira Mrabo, the Medrash says, Kadom Achrod Yoichan, when Rabbi Yoichan passed away, Koru Achrod Mitosoy, Em Yitim Ish Korhoim Beisoy, Ba'av Sha'od, Rabbi Yoichan is a Torah, Boiz Yeboizudo. And I once said, why do Chazal choose Dafka Rabbi Yechonah? Obviously, he was one of the greatest Ameroi. Rabbi Yechonah was the greatest of Ameroi Eretz Israel. 
We had the Rav in Shmuel and Bobel, Rabbi Yochanan and Shlopesh in Eretz And those were the first generation of the greatest of But why do Chazal choose Dafka Rabbi Yochanan? So my feeling is in Brochus that hey, the Gemara says Rabbi Yochanan carried with him a tooth or an etzem. Dein Groma the Asiri Bio. And Rashi explains on the other Rishonim on the spot. Rabbi Yochanan lost ten children in his lifetime. All his children died. Alpanov. So you could imagine what a broken man he was. And he carried with him different Perushim and Rishonim. Was that an etzem, which is unlikely because an etzem is a dama from a smace, or maybe a tooth. And he used to give chizuk to Shvurei Leiv, and he used to tell his personal tragedy. He lost ten children. And the same Rabbi Yochanan in Boba Metziah Peidalet, when Rishlokesh passed away, he was shattered, he was heartbroken. And the Chachmer Beisameh, they said, he's not going to survive. So they looked for the biggest land, and they asked Rabbi Loza ben Pedas to be his chavrusim. And they started learning together. And Rabbi Yochanan asked Kashis, and Rabbi Loza ben Pedas, you know, brings a Tana de Messiah, Eli. And Rabbi Yochanan becomes frustrated. And he said, Atkabar Lakisha, Rishlokesh, everything I said, he had Kashis, and I had Terutzim. I don't need you to tell me how great I am. I don't need you to bring Raias to what I say. I want Rishlokesh as Kashis. And the Chachamim Daman did he pass away, and he passed away. So the same Rabbi Yechon had lost ten children. And he always found Chizuk. But when he no longer had Rishlokesh as a Chavusa, Atzari Ein Begilod, Imroifa Ein Shav. So it's no wonder that Achim Itosu Shereb Yechanan, they said, in Yiddenish Kol Haim Beisoy, Yehavish Ovreb Yechanan Sefer. And I think about my Rebbe's lifetime. So Reb Yechanan lost 10 children, the close of the Rebbe lost 11. And his greatest love was Torah. Torah, learning Torah, teaching Torah, and building Torah. Every Thursday night he used to say Yeshir Chumash Rashi. And that was his platform for talking about Hashkofa, Shailish Azman Groma, current events. It was a Chumash Rashi Shir, but that was his major platform. And there's one Chumash Rashi that stands out and I will remember it forever. So there was a person living in Kiryat Sanz, he was a Litvish person, no way a chassid. But he admired the Rebbe like anybody that was exposed to the Kleis Magarebi. And once he came to visit the Rebbe with his two sons-in-law that learned the brisk, Litvish and Galai. And the Kleis Magarebi talked to them in learning and he was very, very impressed. And he asked them where you learned. They said they learned in prison. 
Now I they pay every month, and you know how much they pay in Bristol. So they said, you know, a few cents. And he was so impressed. He said, so, so he learned He really gave it to the Yungalite, you know, to the Kosovo Yungalite. And he said, I saw two Yungalite this week, Gavaldi Galabdoni, and they told me what they're, what they're getting paid, Koylon. And they learned with Messiris Nefesh, and he said, Do you think I need your Streimlach? He said, Your Streimlach mean nothing to me. And that was a fiery Chumash Rashi. So let me make this clear. Streimlach meant a lot to him. He just said that he meant. No. None of his children have shirts with buttons. Because a button is a modern thing. They have different types of shirts. Their captains don't have buttons, they have hooks. Who has a coat with hooks today? Maybe some ladies do. No, men do. So to him, the lavush of his office meant a lot. But one line in Rashi, or one teret synthesis, meant a thousand times more than Shtaimon, or a kaftan. And I didn't even get to say a word about his tefillas, which were even more amazing than anything else. He was Amut Seloisan Diyasur. And our generation saw nothing like it. No. I think he cried every Shuman in his life. I, I cannot recall that having a Shuman in which he didn't cry. He used to talk to a Kurdish Boko in Yiddish in the middle of Davenant, even in the middle of Tfilis Amina. He used to turn to a Kurdish Boko, Tate, Tate, Tate Kroin was an expression he used a lot. I don't know, probably he heard it from his voice. Coin is a crown. I used to talk to Uncle this well. There's a tshuva in Imre Yosha. From time to time, I quote the Imre Yosha. He was one of the greatest kedoyim in Galicia, the mayor Arik. And there's a tshuva. There's a person allowed to talk in Yiddish in the middle of Shemayinesa. Some say that that tshuva was written to the courts and the I don't know if it did. There is no name there, but uh, but he says that Loi Kola writes a little as Hashem Yovoi Ve'Yitl. But if a person is really dovid in a Kodesh Bolchon, he really means it, then it's not a hefsek. That's his psak. So there's a story told, you know, it's unlike many other beautiful stories in the rabbinical world of yore, especially in Hungary, when you came to visit a town, the first visit you made by the Moradas, and that was a Chokbal Yavor. So the story goes that the Minchas Alozo, the Minchas Alozo was one of the Yedoyim of that generation, the Munkacharov. He was also a god of the Torah. He had Shavis, Judas, Minchas Alozo, and he happened to be in Kloysen, because he wanted to come visit the Kloysen Magarev. And to Hasidim, the Kloysen Magarev, was the Kloysim Agarov. The Munkacharov would never set foot into the home of Rabbi Glazer, Glasner, because he was a Zionist, and the Minchas also was, as you probably know, not much of a Zionist. 
So he sent his gabai to the Kloisen Begorov to check whether he could come visit. And the gabai comes back and he says he's in the middle of Davening. And the Michasarosa tells him, check where he is in the middle of Davening. Where? The gabai comes back and he says, Vayavorech David. And he tells him, Shoita, Vayavorech or David. I told you to check where he is. Check whether he's Vayavorech or David. So that's the story. And that's the way he davened. And the shachas could sometimes take two hours or more. Mincha could take 25 minutes. And kebena meschata b'fnayover, like like Chazal described Rabbi Kivu in Brochas Taflana Dalet, and Nichoi Hodem b'Zoviyas said the Motzoi b'Zoviyas Acheres. So that was my Rabbi who I had the schus of being shamish of seeing. And uh, being the Talmud of a great tzaddik is, uh, is not only a privilege, it's also a responsibility. And that is a story I heard many, many times from the Kloisenberger Rebbe. He used to say one of his earliest memories is sitting in his father's lap. And his father was David Nikarov. And his father was crying. And I asked my father, Tata, why are you crying? So he said, I'm Mekana you. And I was puzzled. And I said, Tata, you're, you're a big rabbi. You have a lot of chasidim. I'm a little boy. Why do you have to be makana me? I'm makana you. So he said, I'm makana you because you never saw the Divrechayim, and I did. And I didn't understand. And I once again asked my father, it's another reason I should envy you because you are the of seeing the Tzanza Zayda, the Divrechayim. And my father told me, you're going to come up with Beis and Shomala. What could they demand from you? I mean, you didn't see the Nebuchadnezzar. So, but when I'm going to come up there, they're going to tell me, you knew the Nebuchadnezzar. So, exactly what did you learn from them? I mean, you had the privilege of seeing the Nebuchadnezzar, and this is who you are. So my father was crying, and he used to relate that story many times. So many times I ask myself, you knew the Kloisim Bagarov. So that's a Tvia. That's a Tvia. You know, it's a, so it's not only a privilege, it's a responsibility as well. So Borch Hashem, I had the schus of being Misham and and I hope that some of the things I saw and experienced <coughs> made an impression on me. So schus Eitoven Oleinu, I'll call you so Marvelous the Jornzeit, and he should be a Meretz Yerushalayim, or his Talmidim, Talmidu Talmidu. I once came to visit him in his elderly years, and that was after he built the Laniato Hospital, and Michal Shas and so many amazing projects. And he said, Zechelki makor amori. Zechok Talmidim marbitzei toyo. Zechelki makor amori, bereav Talmidim bereav. That is another reflection of this unbelievable Avisleil. Uh, so we try to be Marvitz Toyrebi Yisrael, and he should be a Meretz Yoishom, for his Talmidim and Talmidei Talmidov, or my Talmidim in a way, are part of his Albotz Toyrebi. We should be Zoychet to the Sairis Toyrebi, and Yeshuas, and Chomais, and Diaz, and Mashiach, and Kainu, and Meiru, and Yomainu, and Meiru. Thank <laughs> you.